our drug laws are seen as being created rationally to deal with the dangers of drugs rather than created in a series of racist panics and anti-immigrant panics, which is how they were actually created. And so until we get journalists to realize that the establishment here is not based on anything but historical, you know, craziness. When people see that, then they can understand sort of how race plays into this and how so much of what we think about this problem is implicitly around racism. You're listening to Narcotica podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Hello from Narcotica land. This is Troy Farah transmitting from the high desert. It's been approximately one year since our very first Narcotica episode. That's about 22 episodes so far, which has shocked even me, uh, and we have many more in the works. A huge shout out to those who are supporting us on Patreon. We want to keep this program free from corporate influence, and you allow us to do that. What we've been trying to do with this show is amplify the voices of people caught up in the drug war or on the periphery, voices that you don't typically hear in traditional media. We also aim to correct the often inaccurate, unscientific approach that many journalists or talking heads take when covering narcotics. So today we've got some pretty special guests. We're interviewing two folks who were separately featured in our very first episode, Opioid of the Masses, which you can check out in our archives. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that both these people have been huge influences on all of us at Narcotica, me, Chris, and Zach. When it comes to how compassionate, accurate drug policy should look like, they are uncompromising champions for truth, justice, and human rights. So I'm happy to introduce Maya Solovitz, a drug policy reporter and author of the book Unbroken Brain, and Leo Beletsky, professor of law and health sciences at Northeastern University. Everyone, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Our topic today is the new project called Changing the Narrative, spearheaded by Maya and Leo and many others, and created in part by our very own me, Zach Siegel. So I was uh, really in the trenches on this one, and so the elevator pitch for this project that I'm working on goes something like this. So changingthenarrative.news, it's a glossary of flawed narratives, of debunked myths, of old tropes, and stigmatizing language that we really want people communicating about addiction and drug use to avoid. So there's a directory of expert sources that journalists can contact for a quote, or organizations looking for panelists or speakers, people who really know their stuff. So what this is really about, it's raising the standards for communication in this area. It's for everyone. So we, we, we have Maya and Leo here who, you know, really helped bring this into existence. So, I mean, let's start with, with you, Maya. Your whole career is like one long, never-ending struggle to change the narrative. <laughs> Can you yeah. talk about how this idea for the site sort of started with, with, with you? Yeah, so um, I think basically Sarah Wakeman and I, and she is the um, director of the Substance Use Disorders Initiative at um, Harvard, um, she and I were constantly complaining on Twitter about bad coverage, and we were joined by you and by Leo and by many other people, and it just occurred to me that well, maybe we should stop, maybe we should um, try to have an organization to address this because nobody else seems to be doing it. None of the people that should be doing it um, or you would think would be the logical person or organization to do it, were doing it. And so um, so we said, yeah, let's try this. And uh, Leo stepped up um, offering a lot of um, resources and, and support and ideas and um, you and um, somehow we actually made it happen. Uh, Leo, a lot of your work is focused on law and policy. You fought for naloxone access, access to medication in jails and prisons, uh, have fought against drug-induced homicide. Can you break down how media narratives and the way we talk about these issues directly plays into your work? Uh, maybe this new Ending the Fentanyl Crisis Act of 2018 bill can serve as an example of media hype filtering into law. 
Have you looked into what's inside that? Yeah, so I think that the language that we use is determines the solution. So in many ways, the way uh, in many ways, the way that we diagnose a problem sort of spurs responses, and that's certainly um, that's certainly the case with with policy responses to the current crisis. Um, uh, to lead El Sabawi. Uh, has done some really great work looking at the way that uh, a lot of the policy discussions on the floor of the Senate and uh, Congress really sort of predetermine the actual content of the bills. And defining the problems um, is something that policymakers and the media sort of, they, they, there's a there's a, there's a feedback loop, kind of an echo chamber, um, in how folks talk about issues and uh, the you know from from the vocabulary to sort of framing, and that's um, been a, a pervasive issue in drug policy, where uh, in many in many cases the definition of what the problem is um, has driven the solutions. And so, for example, we use the word opioid epidemic uh, to describe the current crisis. In many ways, the term opioid epidemic is incorrect on both elements. The current crisis is really not just opioids. It's, it's uh, a polypharmacy crisis. Most overdoses are overdoses involving a number of different drugs. And so focusing just on opioids means that other substances get ignored or the fact that, you know, the true source, the true engine of overdose is, is really, um, you know, mixing of different uh, depressants, alcohol, benzodiazepines, and so forth. And then on the epidemic side, and, and Zach has written really persuasively about this, um, you know, that, that also conjures up, the word epidemic conjures up various solutions that are responsive to infectious disease. So in infectious disease, if you have a source of an infection, you go to that source, you shut down that source, and, you know, the problem stops. So if you, you know, there's contaminated lettuce or something, you go and shut down the farm for contaminated lettuce, and, and people stop getting um, listeria. Uh, the, the current crisis is not a, an epidemic in its true sense. It's, it's you know, a problem involving sort of multifactorial issues and addiction is really not uh, an infectious disease. It's, it's really a chronic disease. Um, and you can't, you know, quarantine people out of addiction, which is something that we pervasively try to do. No, uh, I mean, it's, oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, I, I just wanted to jump in and say that, like, you know, nobody's out there saying, I must have that listeria lettuce. Like, nobody's deliberately seeking the um, HIV virus or, um, you know, these right. infectious things. And, and so to see the drug as, as that, like, agent that is um, just sort of uh, passively out there is to misconstrue, misconstrue the entire thing. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, getting a little bit in the weeds of sort of public health framing and, and public health policy. Uh, a lot of it does take root in the fight against infectious diseases just because that's what, you know, typically had killed people in the past. And we still cling to a lot of the language and the concepts, um, but they, these are misapplied when, when it comes to um, other kinds of problems, non-communicable diseases, uh, chronic diseases, substance use issues. And so, you know, one example more concretely of how language and media coverage drives backwards policy responses is, um, Troy, as you mentioned, the current um, panic about fentanyl. Um, you know, in many ways, the concern is well-founded because fentanyl is killing a lot of people or it's, it's you know, sort of the driving force behind a lot of overdoses, even though overdoses typically do involve other, other substances. 
However, uh, in many corners, that concern is is uh, misconstrued to people thinking that you can overdose on fentanyl simply by touching it, or that fentanyl is kind of uh, an unequivocal harm. Um, there is fentanyl that's available for addressing severe pain, and that fentanyl, that prescription fentanyl, is an essential healthcare tool. And the illicitly manufactured fentanyl, you know, is a different story. Um, but either with either substance, you, you you really can't absorb it through skin. Uh, but if you were to believe a lot of the media coverage around this issue, um, uh, you know, fentanyl is some you know has these like mythical powers of of being absorbed through skin and causing overdose. It's a weapon and of mass destruction. It's even it's been called that, and it, and it has been called that. Yes. And when that's sort of the the, the narrative around the substance, of course, a politician is going to legislate mandatory minimums and and stiff criminal penalties. So like it's it's very, very direct in this case where the hype and fear around this drug is directly leading to laws and and policy and um, really damaging. Um, things and and so there are. Over What's insane about that though is just that um, we've tried mandatory minimums. We've tried this all over and over and over again. And the idea that like, oh, people are suddenly going to stop um, selling fentanyl because now the sentence is twenty years or thirty years, not five years. Completely misunderstand. First of all, people aren't necessarily even deliberately selling fentanyl. And so it really is outrageous um, that the same, some of the same uh, senators and, and politicians who are uh, out there saying we got to stop mass incarceration and we've got to stop, um, you know, these mandatory minimums are terrible. Oh, but we need a new one for fentanyl because why? Maya, that's a great point. I mean, even here in Philadelphia, Larry Krasner is one of the most progressive DAs in the country, and. Um, he exempted early on fentanyl, you know, early on. I don't know if he's reformed it since because I, I made a lot of noise about it, certainly. Uh, he exempted fentanyl sales from his bail reform package. Um, and anyone that knows even a little bit about drug markets knows that the person at the bottom has no idea what's in it. So I would hear stories of people coming back to the cell going like, shit, man, you know, it had fentanyl. I'm not getting out, you know, like, you know, and, and uh even the most even the most reformist reformers uh, often miss the mark on that. No, it's it's like it's quite astonishing, and I think it's important to sort of think through why why this happens. Um, you know, the whole drug-induced homicide business. It's like we tried these mandatory minimums under the name drug dealing, and they didn't work. Trying the same long sentence, but calling it drug-induced homicide. Why is that going to change things? Like it, it's. It's completely irrational. And that is one of the topics we we go hard on on the site. And and one thing I'd like to hear from both Maya and Leo. So we've identified over 20 topics and we're going to keep building on those. Which ones do you think will be some of the more difficult ones to shift? Um, like I, I have a list of them open if you want me to list a few off, but um, do any stand out as just like, oh, this one's going to be tough? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I've been fighting the addiction versus dependence fight for a long time, and that really is hard to get people to understand, and yet it really is critical to increasing acceptance of medication treatment and increasing uh, access to pain care via opioids for those who actually um, need it. So it's very uh, difficult when you have the DSM in the past using the term dependence to mean addiction, and when you have these sort of well-intentioned journalists who are like, oh, dependence sounds nicer, and they don't realize that it is a completely different thing uh, because they were unfortunately conflated for, ironically, stigma-reducing reasons um, by the DSM, and the you know, there's sort of so many levels of irony there because from dependence, we get codependence, which is ridiculous. Um, 
but yeah, like just getting people to understand that addiction is compulsive use despite negative consequences. And it doesn't have to do with puking and shaking and withdrawal necessarily. It has to do with the ongoing drive to use drugs um, is very important because if you confuse those things, you let people think that medication treatment is just replacing one addiction with another. And you let people think that babies can be addicted because they can be physically dependent. It's really important to distinguish between those because addiction is always a problem, whereas dependence is only sometimes a problem. And in fact, in many cases, people are benefiting from being dependent. For example, medication treatment where uh, you know it's cutting your death rate by 50% or more. Or if a patient is uh, experiencing chronic pain, debilitating pain, intractable pain, and the alternative to dependence is living with crushing pain, right? Exactly, yeah. And I think it's it's very important. You know, people um, sort of have this horror of dependence in America because, like, we're independent and, you know, we don't need anybody and, and we're, you know, rugged individuals. And the reality is that humans are a social species and we all need people and we're all interdependent and that's healthy. Like if we're not that way, that's half the problem with, with how this country is now that like we do demonize dependence. So I think understanding that all of us have various forms of dependence and that many of them are useful um, is important. Absolutely. And, and I think that it's also worth mentioning that we demonize dependence selectively, and oftentimes the demonization targets people who are vulnerable or otherwise stigmatized. So, um, you know, it's that's true of an other many other areas of social policy, such as you know tax policy, for example, where we we demonize people who are dependent on public assistance at the same time as many wealthier people get far more government aid uh, than, uh, than people on public assistance. And it's just, uh, just a No, and it's like a clever, yeah, it's a clever business move if you are um, getting extra government money, but it's like evil wow, welfare fraud if you are doing that to support your kid. Right, right, exactly. So there's a, there's a little bit of a... Uh, uh, you know, in, in many ways, it's it's a rhetorical device that is very much still effective and, um, you know, kind of cuts deep in, in American political sort of psyche. And, and that's why I think it's, it's a sort of very difficult to get people to understand the, the distinction. Um, I mean, I, in my view, I, a lot of these issues that we have come up with and highlighted are going to be, you know, difficult to tackle, which is why our strategy is not only to kind of create a website and passively, you know, get the information out there. In many ways, this information is simply a, you know, a compilation of, of things that have been done before by others. Um, but we, we do have a very, at least, you know, at least the way that we've conceptualized it, a very active outreach strategy that focuses on, uh, and Zach can talk more about this, but focuses on sort of surveillance and monitoring of the media and policy narratives to um, identify when issues are being talked about in ways that that are stigmatizing or incorrect and trying to address that through um quote-unquote detailing or you know directly uh, sort of communicating with uh editors and journalists and trying to get folks you know through sort of friendly conversations or sometimes if if that doesn't work through uh you know, calling people out directly, um, which we, we've done kind of ad hoc. Uh, probably a lot of us have done on social yeah. media. And it but, works sometimes. I mean, the, yeah. that's the tightrope we're kind of walking here. We don't want to alienate the people we're trying to 
change or help improve their practices. So that's going to be the ongoing uh, kind of struggle here, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, I just wanted to say, I think the, um, you know, one of the things that um, harm reduction teaches us is that you have to meet people where they are. Um, and that is like a very hard thing for me, which is ironic since I'm very much opposed to confrontation in general. But when I see something wrong, I do want to confront it. And it's, it's really, but I think more we need to use that motivational interviewing style, i.e., how do we get people to want to change for themselves, not because we want them to change? That's a really good point. Troy, do you want to bring in the Atlantic conversation we had laid out? Sure. Uh, let's talk about this June 8th piece that The Atlantic uh, published saying, with more drug users caring and using the overdose reverser naloxone, the stakes seem lower to some, which is implying that some of the, you know, this is implying this delicious moral hazard there. Um, but at least I didn't use the word addict or something like that. Uh, both of these topics are on changing the narratives, list of inaccuracies and flawed narratives. Uh, and let's talk about why getting both or either of these ones wrong matters. Well, just understanding that people, um, first of all, having an overdose reversed is very aversive. Um, it is not a fun experience. Um, it's often like being interrupted in the middle of a climax. Um, and people don't deliberately seek that experience generally. Um, for the most part, you don't want to be kicked out of bliss and sent into vomiting and anxiety. Um, so this idea that people would take extra drugs uh, because naloxone is around or assume that they're going to be saved because naloxone is around, it just doesn't make much sense. Um, surely you can get people to say a lot of different things and, and people on the street will happily oblige. But the, the real issue here is what does the data tell us about how people actually respond to naloxone? And, and the data is very clear that people are very glad that it's out there, that they don't take extra drugs because also they don't suddenly get extra money to buy extra drugs because naloxone's out there. Um, and, you know, it, it's just, it, it's not based on data. You pick a few cherry picked quotes and you say that, um, oh, some people say like, yeah, now I feel safe because I, I don't have to worry about overdosing anymore. I really like I've talked to many people who use drugs on the street and I really have not heard people say that. Um, I just think, you know, a lot of times you hear people talk about how they don't necessarily um, want to be revived because their lives are not so good. Um, but I don't hear this like, oh, yeah, I'll be fine because naloxone like it just it just doesn't make much sense. Yeah, I've never heard that either. How many people would you say you've interviewed on the street, Chris? Um, I've only revived one person, but I've seen uh, – I've, I've personally only revived one, but I've seen many revived. And it's, it's interesting that you bring up um, that narrative of uh, – because cause I feel like – I feel like I need to push back on the narrative that everyone that gets revived becomes some sort of violent, like, like, like withdrawal ridden, like psychopath. Um, oh yeah. I, I don't think I've really ever seen that. Um, m most times people are grateful. Um, sometimes they're still high to be honest. Um, uh, especially with, with fentanyl, uh, you know, being more powerful and needing several, um, so uh, yeah, while it's it's certainly not something um, that intellectually, oftentimes just telling somebody you're going to Narcan them, you know, is enough to snap them out. Um, right. But, uh, however, um, uh, I've never personally witnessed anyone. I've heard stories. I've never personally personally witnessed anyone get like violent or aggressive or angry or you know um, that kind of thing. Uh, uh, but have you ever talked to anybody who says that, like, oh, now that naloxone's out there, I'm not scared of overdose anymore? Uh, I actually I did. I, I I spoke to one girl who said it it made it. Yeah, I mean, drug users are pretty introspective. I mean, like they're they're aware that that like they've lost one of the bigger fears of like you know is um. But but I I wouldn't say that that that. You know that is putting the chicken before the egg. I mean, they're going to be using anyway. It's not like it's making them yeah. use more, right? So no, so while exactly. I've heard people acknowledge that 
in in a way um it's it's not like a cause effect type thing no yeah yeah i mean and i don't know like i mean um to me that implies an enormous amount of faith in my fellow human beings around me to like be definitely there to revive me which i don't think i would have had on the street it, it used to be you know, woke up if you woke up at all you know your pockets were right full and uh but I think, uh, you know, at least here in Philly, the camps, like, required sort of people to work together to some extent. Um, mm -hmm. And there was a bit of shame around not reviving somebody in, in front of other people. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know. Well, that's admirable, though. And I mean, I think, like, this, again, speaks to the fact that people who take drugs are human and care about other people and, and generally, you know, try to do the right thing. Yeah. And one of my favorite things ever said about this topic was from Dan Big, who said that naloxone is like garlic to the vampire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so uh, one, one other piece that I'd like to bring up, just because it, it happened last week and, and it so perfectly ties into this topic, is a New York Times article that was on, quote, Generation O, which is basically young people who are dealing with parents that are using or young people who have lost parents to overdoses. It took place in Ohio, and it had the term addicted baby in it twice. And I tweeted out and several other people tweeted out that uh, that's not a real thing and that's, and that's inaccurate. And then today I went back to the article while preparing for this interview and noticed that it was corrected, but interestingly, there was no correction at the bottom of the piece. And I didn't know that the Times did that or that was kosher. But I do have the screenshots, so I have the receipt. That's really interesting, though. I mean, obviously, we know that um, there are people um, at the Times who are becoming more sensitive to this, um, and um, we are with them. Um, but um, yeah, like, if you're going to correct it, you should issue a correction. <laughs> That, I don't think that's I don't think that's ethical to to make a correction like that without acknowledging it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but the the thing is, the Times has this weird thing where they do constantly update things and not tell people, um, and that I don't think is a good policy. I think they only use it for uh, breaking news usually. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, you can you can sort of make arguments on either side, but I do think that it should be whatever there. It should be transparent that something was changed. Otherwise, you feel like you're losing your mind. Right. Um, I, you know, I've, ha I've gone both ways. If I notice something, because news updates so fast now, and if you work for certain outlets, you're, you're both the editor, the writer, the producer, you know, like the copy editor. Um, and I think I've, I've like, my rule is, like, if I catch it, like, I don't feel like it requires one. You know what I mean? Like, if I, if I read the, the first round after it's published, you know, and I know we're getting off topic here, but certainly if it's like something that's like a headline or it's like it's it's like been blown away by like lots of comments. Yeah, I mean, to not acknowledge that is is, is unethical. In terms yeah. of our initiative, I think, you know, something that we're trying to do as a next step is actually use deploy kind of uh, media analysis tools to try to track the number of times and the distribution of these tropes or these terms. Uh, the concepts are a little bit harder to track, but a term like addicted baby is relatively easy to track. And so we'll be able to, uh, we're working with folks uh, in the MIT Media Lab. They have this, uh, some really cool tools uh, to, to make this happen uh, called Media Cloud. And so we'll be able to track the the distribution and the frequency of uh, how uh, you know how often these terms get get used, and maybe even uh, you know in an ideal world we'd be able to tell whether or not our efforts um, to reach out to certain news organizations will help to address uh, the use of this language and to you know get folks to use less stigmatizing, more accurate language. And it, of course, it'd be great to to see if uh, you know, if it, what we're doing works. But, you know, in a public health kind of framework, really should focus on prevention rather than, you know, kind of addressing things after the fact. And so um, something that we're going to also try to do uh, with an initiative that is led by Zach, but really involves everyone, is to try to get 
um, are the members of our network in front of uh, both media organizations and journalism students and public policy students and other kinds of students to uh, you know, essentially, you know, give our, our spiel, provide resources, and to explain why the use of correct and non-stigmatizing language is really critical, and hopefully that'll, um, that'll facilitate uh, folks not, you know, not having to change. Behavior change is difficult, so not having to kind of try to convince people to change what they're doing, but to get uh, uh, folks to start off on the right foot. Well, I was it's interesting. So I was at a, a panel yesterday at a boot camp um, sponsored by the by Johns Hopkins uh, for science writers and focused on addiction and mental illness. And I was on the last panel of the day, and I expected like, oh, people are going to leave, but um, it was actually quite full. And people were really intrigued by getting this right. And some people, one woman came up to me afterwards and said, you know, you completely change the way I see this. And so, yeah, I think, um, A, yay, that's possible. And B, that, um, you know, reaching out to these organizations um, really can make a difference. Yeah, and people people do change. I think, uh, I think all of us, I mean, me, certainly, I feel like I've, I read some of the older stuff that I've written, and, and I just didn't know better. So oh, same here. We're all learning all the time, and and that's that's part of life. Uh, I'd just like to ask you too about the your thoughts on the term overdose. And um, it came up with me this summer when we had the outbreak of synthetic cannabinoids and and the and the, the heroin here. And um, and it was you know the papers, local papers described it as an overdose and as overdoses, as did the Department of Health. Um, and, you know, I criticize that and I don't want to rehash like sour grapes, but, but I wound up going back to, and it, you know, going back to the scopolamine outbreaks in the nineties that sickened a bunch of people. And the New York times never used the word overdose once they were called poisonings. Doesn't, doesn't overdose imply, um, like fault in some way. And, and when, when do you think it's appropriate to use the term and when, and when not? I mean, that's really interesting. Like, I think, um, I don't know, that seems like, A, it's going to be an enormous battle and, and we have to pick our fights. Um, but um, I do think that poisoning is often more accurate. It's just a question of, um, you know, if we're going to challenge every bit of language related to the, um, <laughs> to the situation, right, right. It, it may yes. be difficult. But no, I do think like, you know, um, emphasizing that these are mixtures um, emphasizing that they are often poisoning. But the problem, of course, with poisoning is then that the dealer did it. Well, in this case, the, the dealer did. But, um, and that was synthetic <laughs> cannabinoids. But, 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 but when you're dealing with a potent, like variable potency, um, you're, you, you're, you're take, you might be taking what you think is the same dose. You know, it's like... Um, no, exactly. And, and so, right. I mean, there isn't kind of a... I don't think there's a word for it, but it, 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 it is... I think it is an interesting issue. And... and um, uh, one that should be thought through. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, you know, language is highly contentious, uh, and there's entire fields of you know academic study devoted to that. I don't know that we'll ever all agree to on everything, but the but the point of this initiative is to really focus on the highest need and the most egregious violations of accuracy and you know humanism and uh you know the stuff there's there's no limit to you know how how much discussion we can have but yeah yeah i, I mean i agree with you a lot of the changing the narrative stuff can be somewhat pedantic and i really want to unpack this for listeners uh, to give an example i recently spoke with a reporter friend who is doing a story on insist therapeutics you know, the fentanyl manufacturer that is going bankrupt because the company was convicted of bribery. His story was on how INSYS flooded the Arizona political system with cash to keep marijuana illegal, which worked uh, out of, I think, nine different pro-cannabis laws voters decided on in 2016, only Arizona's failed. And he was mentioning how marijuana hasn't killed anyone, but opioids have played a large role in several thousand overdose deaths in Arizona. So I was like, hold on a minute and explain the difference between licit and illicit fentanyl. In other words, INSYS didn't really play a big role in the opioid overdose crisis. 
Um, but what I'm, when I'm correcting a friend like this, it can feel like I'm mincing words, splitting hairs, or getting all bent into the shape over little details. We've kind of gone over this a little bit, but my question is, like, to both of you, really, why should people care? Are there really such severe consequences to mistakes like these, or are we just arguing about semantics? Well, there are, I mean, the addiction dependence thing can mean the difference between somebody um, going to prison or not. Um, can mean the difference between people getting effective pain care or getting effective addiction treatment or not. Um, so that one really is life or death. Addicted babies also, I was at this conference, one of the people told a story about a child that they knew that hated themselves. And it turned out that this child had been told they were born addicted and they thought they were an addict. And this was like a seven or eight year old. So you can imagine because of the stigma we have on the word addict, you know, dishonest, manipulative, all these horrible stereotypes that we have about people with addiction, um, that this little kid was um, applying them to themselves because they had overheard this thing about themselves being what is actually the case, born dependent on opioids. Um, so, you know, so yeah, like these are not just semantic issues, like when um, these really can cut to the bone. And I think it's, it's important for us to explain that, you know, a lot of times, yeah, we are trying to get more nuance into a conversation that like makes this very nice, simple story and we're complicating things for people and people don't like complication. But when you explain, hey, there's this whole group of people who have pain who are being cut off from medications that are helping them in the name of helping other people that aren't going to be helped by cutting off pain patients, um, you know, you sort of, you can get people to understand it more. And I mean, I think the INSYS story there is really interesting because um, why should they campaign against medical marijuana? That's the most absurd thing in the world. Um, you know, I mean, that, and, you know, waste of their money. Obviously, in this instance, it probably helped them um, uh, or helped defeat the initiative. But, um, you know, I do think there is an irony in that, that they would be so scared by marijuana. Right. And I, and I do think that, you know, no one, well, few people like sort of pedantic discussions, but there is a metaphor in finding nuance and balance in language and finding nuance and balance in policy and other responses. Um, and we really lack nuance and balance on both sides. Uh, and that's kind of what we're trying to foster is, you know, a little bit of a deeper understanding of what the issues actually are um, and not trying to demonize, um, you know, people unnecessarily and trying to come up with, you know, calibrated, well-calibrated responses to a problem that is multifactorial. Yeah. And I mean, how you frame things makes a massive difference. I think this is um, one of the things that makes harm reduction such a powerful idea is that if you understand the problem is harm. The problem isn't the fact that people get high, the fact that people take drugs. We shouldn't care about that as a society if it's not harming anybody. If it is harming somebody, that's where we need to have concern. But if your policy numbers are all about, oh, look, you know, we made X number of drug seizures and we reduced the amount of use by X, which almost never happens. But um, if you are measuring by like how many people are dying of overdose, how many people are becoming addicted, not using, um, you can then really, it, it shifts everything. And, and this is why, you know, framing the discussion and getting journalists and policymakers to see that if you have the wrong measures, you're going to get the wrong results um, is really important. Yeah. And I, and I think that the way we explain how all of the issues that we identified have material harms and impact real people in, in very real ways, I think that gets beyond the, well, this is sort of liberal PC snowflake stuff and stop policing my language and, and all that. Like, that's the kind of thing I think we can easily get past. And of course, the harder thing, the more persistent thing will, will really be 
changing people's habits and 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 like you were saying Maya changing uh the way people think like you got through to someone at a conference and totally shifted their consciousness about some of these issues and I think you know at some point I think that's probably happened to a lot of us where we think one way and then especially in this space begin to do some research talking to new people and completely shift and revolutionize our consciousness on these things yeah yeah and I think it's it's really important to know that you know this is this is a complicated area and there's a lot of uh, weird intersections and a lot of um, you know paradoxes and and all kinds of difficulties so yeah, I think the more we think about it, the more we frame it. Um, and in terms of like liberal snowflake PC, my feeling about that is that people with addiction have not had a voice. And if we are going to get ourselves called people with addiction rather than addicts, that will prove that we do have a voice. I agree with you. Um, I, as as a journalist, like I feel like my role is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And part of the reason why I focus so much on drug policy is because people who use drugs are some of the most ostracized in society. They're the most demonized. They have some of the less, uh, they, they have less of a voice in society than m many other groups. It's almost hard to find some groups that aren't <laughs> treated as badly as them. And, and I think that, you know, you, you should be, as a journalist, I want to help them um, be heard. Yeah, and, yeah, and uh, that's why this podcast is such a you know a beacon, a refreshing uh, you know voice, uh, and that's that's also something that we're trying to do in changing the narrative. I think that requires providing uh, you know a platform for different kinds of voices than those that have shaped the narrative thus far. One of the reasons why the narrative has remained so twisted and so stigmatizing is because the voices that are lifted up typically are not of the most, uh, of the most affected folks. And, um, and that also means that, you know, those who have had a platform uh, need to step back. And that especially in includes um, prosecutors in law enforcement who typically do drive the narrative around drug policy and the media treats them as if they were experts and turns to them and kind of carries water for them and buys their narrative at face value. And that's something that uh, needs to change. Well, this is also why I think we cannot leave out the role of racism in this and why we need to urgently include as many voices of people of color as possible, because the reason that prosecutors and law enforcement do get such a voice is because our drug laws are seen as being created rationally to deal with the dangers of drugs rather than created in a series of racist panics and anti-immigrant panics, which is how they were actually created. And so until we get journalists to realize that the establishment here is not based on anything but historical you know, craziness, um, when people see that, then they can understand sort of how race plays into this and how uh, so much of what we think about this problem is implicitly around racism. And unless we address that, uh, it becomes very difficult to talk about drug policy change because people think that the policy we have is supported by reason. Absolutely. Like, it, it's great to be on this side of history because so much of drug policy is irrational. And it it's not like we're just trying to represent people, which we are, but we're also like, just like, look at the science. There's so much evidence, like even for using the term addict or drug user or person who uses drug, there's research to support a better outcomes if you choose better terms. Absolutely. And actually, let me interject before I forget this, but there was a person um, who is on the panel with me um, named Emma McGinty, who's a researcher, I think at Johns Hopkins. Um, and she did a study of uh, the journalistic content of some of these things like using the word addict as a noun. And she found 50% of articles had at least one of these flawed terms in them, often many. 
Um, so she is somebody that I think we should also talk to um, for changing the narrative um, because she has done some of this work. Yeah, there's an entire stigma lab uh, that Emma and, and her colleagues, John Hopkins, run. Um, you know, the, the one thing that I think is a blind spot uh, in, in their work, not to be overly critical, but, you know, stigma in my mind, you know, as a kind of a lawyer and a policy researcher is, is, uh, undivorceable from criminalization. I agree. And that's, that's indeed, I said that. And, and she was actually receptive to that. Yeah, well, that's that's good to hear because I, I think that is something that you know they they haven't really they don't explore and and um, I have uh, you know urged them to do so and I think that's something that is critical to you know if you're going to fight stigma you have to talk about the role of criminal law and law in general. Yep. That, we're certainly trying to do that with our project and and I hope others will join us as well. No, I think also like, right, because the criminalization is an engine to create stigma. That's the entire point of it. Exactly. Um, so, right. And so emphasizing that I think is, is also important. And um, it ends up coming out sounding radical, but it really isn't. Right. We, 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 we can't destigmatize something that's, that's a crime. I mean, the whole point of a crime is to make people in society yeah. not do those. <laughs> It's a normative, yeah. you know, what lawyers call the normative statement. You, you're saying this is this is not normal. This is deviant and this is wrong. And that's why it's a crime. And so, you know, I, I just find it interesting that there is a relative agreement. There's a consensus that stigma is one of the critical obstacles to really addressing, you know, substance use in, in more effective ways. But you won't really hear folks talk about that. I mean, it's interesting because um, Nora Volkov actually does support decriminalization. Um, and, you know, she has said this publicly, but it's it's not been really uh, sort of reported the way I think it probably should be, um, because historically that has not been the case out of that agency. Well, that agency does have the word abuse uh, right in its name, as does SAMHSA. Well, actually, so to be fair to them, it takes an act of Congress right. to change the name of a uh, national institute. That, that is true, but they have not they have not made a strong case for for that change, which I think is oh interesting. Because I thought I thought they were in favor of it, but um, uh, you would know better there. Well, I, I think they are in favor, but I have not, you know, they have not spoken in public forums about it, and they've not thrown their resources into changing their name. For example, the the Canadians have, and they changed the name of their national um, uh, organization. So, I guess I was more sympathetic to the fact that nothing gets through Congress these days. That's <laughs> that's for sure. Well, I think, you know, this is a, a good place to to wrap up. I mean, I think we're in this for the long haul, and um, I'm really excited that Changing the Narrative exists, and I'm really excited that uh, there, there are things like Narcotica, this podcast, and so many people working together to, to I think, just demand standards in a place that law enforcement and so many other bad actors have just really dominated the field. Like, I think we're finally at a point where our voices are carrying weight. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's just right. I feel so grateful that this has actually evolved into an organization and a website that we can try to get this out there as best we can. And also just that you know, people um, in this field across disciplines are, you know, working together. Yeah, and, and in many ways, this is a, a true child of the kind of the internet and the Twitter age where there is this element of democratization of information and, you know, we're kind of taking matters into our own hands, uh, given the, you know, intransigence of, of how the media sphere and a policy sphere has, has uh, you know, captured the narrative and we're, we're really trying to, trying to disrupt it, I guess. Yes. 
in a good way. Our listeners can go to changingthenarrative.news. Is there anything else you want to let them know? No, I just like we would love we would love as much support as possible and any uh, questions we'd be happy to hear. Yeah, and I wanted to also add that this is really just uh, you know a resource and a platform, and it's up to uh, folks like your listeners to go out there and keep an eye out, and if they see something, to say something and to send you know uh, people who. Uh, could benefit from more accurate information to our website. Uh, so we we invite folks to kind of, you know, crowdsource this thing, I guess. Yeah. Agreed. This is definitely a crowdsourcing measure. Okay. Well, thank, thank you. Thanks to you guys for having us so much. Yeah. Oh, yes. Likewise. Leah Valetsky and Maya Solovitz, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for listening to Narcotica. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Moraff, Zachary Siegel, and myself, Troy Thera. Our co-producer is Aaron Ferguson, and our theme music is by Glassboy. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast or on Narcocast.com. If you like the program and you want to support us, there are a few ways you can help. Tell a friend about us. Most podcasts become popular via word of mouth. Or give us a decent rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Second, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash narcotica, where you'll get access to exclusive bonus content and help us pay our bills a little bit. We are so grateful for the people that make this program possible. We want to stay ad-free, and you guys help us do that. Thank you so much.